Hey everyone, welcome back to episode 34 of Attitude Check. Today we are concluding our series with local professors. Today we have Bob Cook, who is a professor at the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs. And Bob Cook, he teaches classes on information technology and cybersecurity. And going through school, when I took his class, I think I mentioned this in the actual episode, but it really scared the heck out of me to think about all of the threats and how we're at risk as far as cybersecurity attacks. So he's a really intelligent guy, is such a depth of knowledge on the field. So I think all of you are going to really enjoy this conversation with Bob Cook. Endeavor to challenge yourself every single day. Engage with your community, effect change, and produce impact. I'm John Mark Ratzbinner. And I'm Brent Sabati. And this is the Attitude Check Business Leadership Podcast. We have the conversations that young professionals should be having, but aren't. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Attitude Check. Today we have Bob Cook as our guest. Bob is the instructor of business analytics, information systems, and cybersecurity at University of Colorado at Colorado Springs. Bob, thanks for being here. Thank you. So Bob, as always, we like to start off the podcast with an icebreaker question. And since you're an instructor of cybersecurity, um, and a little bit of backstory to this, uh, when I first took your class, you gave us some stories about cybersecurity and gave some examples of what could go wrong. And it, to be quite honest, scared the daylights out of me just knowing how <laughs> exposed I was out there. Mm-hmm. So what is the biggest mistake or faux pas that you see the average person um, doing in the cybersecurity world? Probably really two things that I think that, you know, the list is truthfully pretty long. We have entire things that we cover on cybersecurity. But for the average person, the two things that I think are the biggest mistake for them is for one, they um, remain relatively ignorant of how their data is being used. When they sign up for a new service, like an Instagram or a Snapchat, they don't read the terms of service and they don't read how their data is being captured or how it's being used. So they're ignorant of how that data is being used for or against them. And then the second is how they deal with their passwords. Far too many people use the same two or three passwords on all of their websites, which means if a hacker gets access to one of them, then we've got you and there's no saving you at that point. Uh, Again, the list is pretty long, but from the biggest bang for, for the buck, I would say if people were better about managing their passwords and if people were better about, even if you don't want to read the 87 page long Facebook terms of service, even doing an internet search to say, are there any privacy concerns in the Facebook terms of service agreement? Plenty of people have read it and will post their thoughts and concerns on it. So general education of that stuff, I think, is critical. So even if you read the terms of service, does it allow for you to behave differently to protect yourself? Or do the terms of service, it's just knowing what you're getting into at that point and there's not much you can do about it. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it really depends on the application. It's actually one of the things that the European Union in their global data privacy regulation, the GDPR that, that took effect this year, uh, one of the things they're trying to accomplish is when you sign up for a lot of these services, you're given one option, either accept these terms of service or don't use our service. And one of the things that the GDPR is trying to do is to say that's not okay. I should have the option of 
granularity of I'll allow you to use the data for this, this, and this, but not that, and I can still use your service. That's being challenged, of course, by a lot of companies in the tech sector that their revenue stream, Google, Facebook, others, that their whole revenue stream is based on collection of data. But, you know, it's not a judgmental thing. If a person reviews the terms of service and they say, I'm uncomfortable with that, then would you really want to use that service if they have written in their terms of service there? For example, Facebook is allowed to do social experiments and psychological experiments on their users. They got caught doing it, actually. They did an experiment on about 800,000 of their users, um, and they published the results of that. <laughs> would you really want to use that kind of service? But for some, I use Snapchat as an example. When I do workshops for K through 12, especially high schoolers, they have this perception that, well, snaps go away. The, the reason we like to do that is that our parents don't see it because the Snapchat dissolves and it goes away. But in fact, if you read the terms of service, Snapchat admits that they keep all snaps for a minimum of 30 days in case law enforcement or someone else needs them. So the snaps don't actually go away. Well, when I show that to those, those students, those kids, the look of shock and awe on their face of <laughs> I had no idea that that data wasn't private and secret after all. The other thing to, for people to keep in mind is we live in a world now where something you post or say when you're 14 might be used against you when you're 50 because it's never going to go away. And we're seeing that in the political spectrum left and right. Uh, we're digging up things from as far back as we need to go to find somebody. And the unfortunate challenge of that, and again, it's why I do outreach to K-12, through is that when you're a teenager in a high school and you're trying to figure out who you are, you say radical things. And you may not even mean them. You may not even understand what you're actually saying. It's all part of learning. It's all part of learning the kind of path you want to be on life and the kind of person you want to be. And that shouldn't be held against you. That shouldn't be thrown in your face years down the road. But in fact, there are tools coming out that for employers, when we're looking at interviewing a person for a job, we are now going to be presented with tools that I can scour every post you've ever done on social media. And that will allow me to make a determination as to whether something you've posted is too radical and I can't take the PR nightmare of hiring you. You may no longer feel that way. You may no longer fall in line with what you said when you were 17. It won't matter. I won't be able to hire you because you would be too big of a risk. And that's, it's not fair, but it's the world we live in now. So nowadays it's real. It really is the rule of thumb to where assume anything that you upload, post, take a picture of can be found by someone. Yeah. And, and not only found, but once you've posted it, whoever's following you. So whoever, let's take Snapchat as an example, whoever your Snapchat friends are, you have no control over what they do with them. Yes, there's notifications if you set it right that if they screenshot your image, you should be notified of that. But if they take their friend's phone and take a picture of their phone, you don't get that notification. And lots of kids do this. There's a lot of that going around. And that's where we get into the cyberbullying, other things that we have to deal with. But generally, I tell people, assume if you've allowed it to leave your device, whether it's email, Snapchat, texting, what have you, assume it exists forever. And that there is a way for someone somewhere to dig it up. It, it poses a lot of challenge for people of how do they then have those private conversations? Um, how do they, you know, you can't really have freedom if you can't have a private conversation where you can kind of figure out what you want to believe in and what your thoughts are and then express it publicly. Um, that's kind of where the debate of 
encryption and whether government should have keys and things like that starts coming into play. So do you think that leads towards a higher level of um, not only scrutiny that people are under, but also a higher level of accountability? Uh, for instance, if you take people having, you know, kind of those backdoor secret conversations in larger corporations or governments or anything like that, do you think it allows for, you know, a, a more free, diverse conversation among people too? I wish that were the case, but no. I think what happens is people stop when, when, well, I think there's a lot of psychologists that have argued that people who are observed tend to behave better. Uh, certainly in China with their social experiment they're doing on the social credit score. Their belief is that if you know you're being watched at all times, you'll behave as a better person. I think what actually happens in my own experiences and, and understanding of people is that you become two different people, who you really are on the inside and then who you present to the world. And I think the danger that comes into that is then we aren't being presented with honesty with each other. We know that, think of a job interview. I've interviewed and hired thousands of people over my executive career and I get the game. We all understand the massaging of a resume that is done in order to match the job description and to highlight it. And I'm not saying that people outright lie, although there are some that do. But people who massage and use the right action verbs and things like that. And then when they present themselves to me, if they've made it to that part of the cut across the table, I understand I'm seeing their best version of themselves that they want to present to me. And they're answering questions in a way that they think I want to hear. And they're using their weaknesses if I ask those questions and they're spinning them to look like an advantage. I get that game. Right? We all understand that. That's not the real person. That's not the real person that I want to know when you're here for six months and your guard's down and you're having a crummy day, then who's going to come out? Because if the real you comes out at that point, now from a corporate standpoint, I'm in real trouble. Because if I find out when that real you comes out that I've hired the wrong person, it now becomes quite expensive and potentially legally problematic for me to fix that to get rid of you if I need to or something like that. And what damage will you do to the rest of the team while you're in play? So for me, it became common practice that I would hire people as a, uh, I'm going to hire you as a contract to hire for nine months. I'm going to pay you full salary, but you're going to be a contractor. If everything works out over this nine month or 12 month period or something like that, we'll roll you into an employee. Your seniority will count right back from the day one that you started as a contractor. But as a contractor, I can get rid of you any day for any time, any reason, without ramifications. Because in some time in those nine months, you're going to have a bad day or a week. And I'm going to get to see the real you. And I'm going to get to see if that real you, not the one you presented in the interview, but is that real you? You know what? You had a rough day, but the way you handled it, I really like. You really handle it with the team well. You're the kind of person I want on the team. You're, you're rolling into a permanent employee. So I don't think the idea of everybody thinking they're watched at all times makes them better people. People have to decide themselves if they want to be better people or not. I think what happens is they present a false front. And the false front is more dangerous to me than dealing with the the real person. Absolutely. And Bob, you referenced your uh, executive background and experience. Um, so could you take us through the story um, of how you got started in business and how you got to the position you're at today? Uh, sure. So 
uh, I guess started in business. It depends on how far back and what we want to define as started. But <laughs> actually, in a long, long time ago, in my first start in business was actually in high school. The high school that I went to had their theater department completely remodeled. And as part of that, new lighting and sound. And that was one of the things that I did. I did it originally for extra credit because I was failing English. And the English teacher was the the uh, the theater director. <laughs> and so uh, I started doing lighting and sound. And I loved the technology of the lighting and sound. At that time, we had state-of-the-art. Well, the company that installed that was looking for local sales reps. So me and a person who were the two leads on this started our own little sales rep agency to sell us equipment. I kind of got started with that. Then I did a stint in the Air Force, and after the Air Force, and while in the Air Force, I got several degrees. Um, I was an electrical engineer in the Air Force, and when I left the Air Force, I wanted to go into a technical uh, career field, and so I started working for a company that we did automation for warehouses and and uh, manufacturing systems, robotics and automated conveyors and things like that. Well, my last four years in the Air Force, I was actually pulled out of the field to be an instructor, so I was taught how to speak in front of people and not collapse. And because I was a highly technical person who could convey, and I taught electrical engineering, so I taught very technical concepts to 18, 19-year-old kids coming right out of basic training that were going to go into this career field. And we were specifically taught how to do those things. It meant that when I was in this, this job with the automation company, the salespeople would take me on sales calls with them because you reach a point of the sale where the client says, okay, yeah, all these salespeople have been telling me everything I want to hear. I don't trust any of you. I want you to bring in a technical person who's actually going to deliver this project to tell me it can do what you say it can. And salespeople would take me because, again, I could speak in front of people and I could translate the technical jargon into something that the client would understand and feel comfortable with. And because of that, I started getting kind of shoved up the career ladder. I was asked to open up a divisional office. I was pushed through that. And then I started getting kind of poached from company to company where people would, who had worked with me and then left and went to another company, they would later try to recruit me for a, another position in that company. And for a while I was chasing titles and those sorts of things. And I, uh, you know, I've been everything from a president and COO of organizations like AAA Colorado to, uh, you know, CTOs and SVPs and all kinds of three letter things. Um, and th that was all wonderful and I liked climbing that corporate ladder but I did as I had kids and they started getting older I, I you know being a senior executive is not all golf games and scotches and cigars it's a lot of travel and a lot of work and I wasn't home very much and I wanted to make the conscious decision of uh, a lifestyle change so I sort of mostly stepped away from that executive career to be able to, I was given the opportunity to come teach here and I wanted to step away from that career so that I'd have more time with my, with my sons and my wife and, and enjoy that stuff. And I still do consulting on the side and still kind of keep my toe in it a little bit, but it was, it was really important to me that while I chased the career ladder and chased the, the big money and all the hoopla initially, I reached a point in my life that I realized that I don't think my boys will remember, wow, dad made really big paychecks more than dad was able to pick me up from school on most days and, you know, take me hiking or take me and do stuff like that. And that's, that's the kind of stuff I was, I was searching for more than anything. 
So how long after uh, you kind of started feeling that did you transition into uh, going into like higher education? And was it something that you wanted to get into since you started doing instructing and training in the Air Force? It, it, it You know, it's interesting. When I got pulled out of the field, I was being deployed all over the world. And when I got pulled out of the field to be an instructor, I was drug kicking and screaming. I had the same... <laughs> Fear of speaking in front of people and that kind of stuff that everybody did. And I thought, what on earth are they doing to pull me in and teach people? I'm not the right guy. Well, the Air Force does a really good job of, of teaching people. And as I started teaching, I really caught the bug. I really enjoyed it. And in fact, post-Air Force, in almost every company I was with, in the startup companies I worked for, I was a guy that would jump in and launch the training department because um, I always wanted to keep some training up and running. And I had honestly thought, my wife and I had talked about it, that, well, when I get close to retirement years, maybe I'll try to roll into higher education and, and uh, you know, share all my experiences. Well, it it turns out that people who teach in higher education do that till they die. So, you know, jobs don't come up very often <laughs> in higher education at the, at the, you know, good university level. And this position came available, and I interviewed for it, and I thought, you know, I, I doubt they're gonna they're gonna want to bring me in. I'm still a corporate executive. I'm still, you know, heavily engrossed in the team. And a lot of the people they were interviewing were, were people that had just done academics their whole life. And and uh, lo and behold, they they did choose to do that. So I did get the bug in the Air Force. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I stayed with in doing corporate training as as. Uh, you know, I always made sure the corporate training team also reported up to me, to put, you know, regardless of how many other teams I had, and then just seized an opportunity when it came about. Hmm. Interesting. So you're an instructor of information systems and cybersecurity, and obviously cybersecurity is one of those industries that's on the rise. There's a lot of demand for it, um, especially with a lot of new uh, businesses and organizations in Colorado Springs. Mm -hmm. um, so can you speak towards what uh, potential um, either students or people who are looking at this as a career path should look out for? Um, you know, you hear things from recruiters like, you know, cybersecurity, if you just get few certifications. There are people just grabbing those certifications and making, you know, $80,000, $90,000 a year right off the bat. So it's a very lucrative career. Um, but besides just, you know, like we mentioned earlier, chasing the money, uh, what are the things about the, the profession that people should know? Mm -hmm. There's a lot they should know. Uh, for one, <laughs> cybersecurity is a very broad field. Uh, that, that term itself can cover everything from do you want to be something like a certified ethical hacker where you try to actually perform penetration testing and hack towards companies or do you want to be somebody working internal with a corporation trying to defend that corporation there's hardware versions of it software versions of it there's physical penetration testers there's social engineering so that term itself cybersecurity uh, is not one career field there's 50 60 different career fields under the umbrella of cybersecurity, for one. For two, it is an interesting career field in that if you want to try to pursue a career with uh, government agencies, Department of Defense, or fairly large corporations, they're going to be all about the certifications. They're going to be, do you have the right certifications so we can put initials next to your name on the business card and we can check a box with our uh, auditors and others that, yes, they have the certification. 
A certification does not equate to talent. And what some of those organizations are starting to find is they focus so much on certification and great, this is a person who could pass an exam. That's awesome. But they have no love of the career field. They have no love of the product. They were purely chasing those dollar signs. And so some are starting to get smart in that they're hiring ethical hackers. And the best hackers I know uh, don't have college degrees. They started when they were, you know, five months old, uh, banging on computer systems and speaking spells, and they hacked everything they got their hands on. And companies are starting to look at that level of talent as well. So it's, it's complex in that, yes, there is a lot of money that can be made. Some certifications like the CISSP and others actually require a certain number of years experience in the field before you can get them. Others like some of the CompTIA, Security Plus and Network Plus, et cetera, you don't need experience. You just need to pass the exam. Those are great to get yourself in the door. They're great to pad a resume so that you have all the boxes checked so the company can hire you. But what I try to tell students in my cyber courses is that if you think you can ride your career just on a certification, you're going to be terribly surprised when things go south in an organization. If that company has data or information that is valuable to a cyber criminal, and by the way, the, the largest group of cyber criminals that exist in the U.S. is organized crime. It's not nation states. It's not guys in black hoodies that are meth heads in their mom basement. <laughs> it's organized crime because there's money to be made in it through ransomware and crypto lockers and things like that. So what I tell people is the certification should be considered like many things, that it may get you to the interview. But then don't be surprised if in that interview there's technical people in the room asking you to demonstrate your skills. So absolutely pursue a certification or two if you're starting out so that you, you at least make it to the table. But with that, you have to do the hands-on, day-to-day learning and show your passion for the career field. You need to understand the lingo. You need to. I've walked into interviews where people have said, hey, I don't have any questions for you, except here's a computer. Go hack that router for me. And literally all they're observing is, do you even have a starting point? Do you even know what tool to bring up or a way to do it? Do you do the simplest of things like go see if there's a sticker on the router with a username and password for it? And have you ever done this before? Or are you just a person that checked out a book, studied really hard, passed the exam, and you think that's all that needs to happen? You know the, the terms and terminology, but you've never actually done it. So I try to tell my students that, you know, you, you need to make sure that, especially with cyber, you've got the hands-on. You're playing with it. You've built your own little lab at the house. You've banged and done things as much as you can so that even if you don't know how to get into that particular router, often that's not really the point. The point is, are you bringing up a tool set that are logical and make sense of, okay, this person's clearly done this before and we can train them the, the last mile, if you will, within the company. So as far as getting a, a formal education in cybersecurity, what would you say are the main differences between someone who wanted to go to a, like a four-year university for a cybersecurity degree versus um, other institutions that specialize it, like SecureSet or other organizations mm-hmm. like, like that? Tech schools. Yeah. A lot of that depends on wh- what... It's a very complicated question because I get asked a lot, especially as you'd imagine by nieces and nephews of, uh, you know, you see media hype now saying is, is a four-year degree really necessary anymore? <laughs> and again, speaking not as a academic, but as a person who spent 25 plus years as an executive in a company hiring people. 
I never was overly concerned, with some exceptions, of what school, what four-year institution you went to. But I did notice a difference of if you went to a tech school versus a four-year institution. And I did look for people with degrees, specifically because the degree to me, uh, as again, a person who's hired thousands of people, told me so much more than just what the title of your degree was on the paper. It told me you could stick with something because it's not easy to get through all of that. It told me you could stick through it. But I also know with most four-year degrees, because of the nature of how they're laid out, I know you have some rounding to that education. I know that even if you've got a degree in cybersecurity from a four-year institution, take our institution, if you got that degree from the School of Business, well, I know you probably have at least one accounting class. You've got one finance class. You've got one operations class. You've got one other class, which means as the business changes and as our need for the business changes, I know that I'm hiring somebody that has the flexibility in their skill set that if the specific job that I'm hiring them for today doesn't exist in two years, doesn't mean I have to lay them off. It means that they've developed the ability to learn a rounded skill set that I can say that job's going away, but we've got a new job being created over here. I think I can fit you into that job. I think you've got a skill set that will work in that. And it, it's hard for someone, and, and I don't mean this in any condescending way, but for someone who's just starting out their career, who believes they absolutely have a laser focus on what they want to do. I've not ever met someone in their 40s who's doing what they thought they were going to do <laughs> when they were 23. I've not. I've never met anyone. Because life throws you stuff. Life throws you opportunities, throws you curveballs, economies go up, economies go down, companies open, close, get merged, get get acquired, and they fire off all the executive. All that stuff happens. But the people with degrees have the rounded flexibility that they always land on their feet. They always have the ability to say, I can see the change that's coming and I can adapt to this new path and I'll be on it. The people who have gone through a laser-focused, let's say, tech school type of training, who know that one skill set really, really well, what happens when that skill set vanishes? What what do I do with you? I, now you have to go to another tech school and get another thing. Um, that's the biggest difference I've seen in people that do pure tech school type training versus four-year degree. Now, having said that, I will tell you that we openly partner with like community college, Pikes Peak Community College, and we will tell students, especially for cyber, they've got a terrific program, but they're a two-year school. So we tell folks, go to Pikes Peak for the first two years. We're going to try to accept as many of those credits as we possibly can. You'll save yourself a ton of money, and then you can finish the last two years with University of Colorado, and you have University of Colorado four-year degree, that's going to save you money and give you the maximum benefit that you're going to have for your future. I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that. But I caution my own relatives on, if you're just going to a tech school to learn one thing, what do you do when you find out that that one thing isn't what you want to do, or that one thing changes and goes away? That's a recipe for disaster, for sure. That's something... 
yeah, you don't really hear that often because I, I feel like you hear the opposite with a lot of people who are in college to where they're taking a bunch of other courses. They think it's uh, super, superfluous and they're like, why am I wasting money on stuff I'm not going to use? Well, they don't take into account. Well, maybe you will, you know, use it one day. It's going to be applicable in some capacity. Yeah. Think of it this way. So corporate executive, we spend too much of our lives in meetings with various people. And I have had times where you've brought people together because the company has some problem. New product launch has gone wrong. Customer's not happy. Acquisition is happening. Whatever the, the issue is, there's always issues to deal with. That's what we do is solve problems, move forward. That's what managers and executives do. So you bring a team of people together and you say, look, as a team, we're going to solve this problem. The most effective teams I've ever managed or been involved with are those that every member of that team has that rounded ed education. Yes, this person works in accounting and this one's in marketing and this one's in sales and this one's in IT and this one's in ops and et cetera. But because they all have that rounded information, that person in ops understands enough about sales and marketing because they've got a general background and understanding of it that they may ask some probative questions that have the whole team going, huh, that's a unique perspective. I didn't think of it that way. Whereas if you get someone, let's say the IT person who went through a tech school and only knows anything about IT and they're sitting there on their laptop or their phone because they don't understand what's going on in the meeting, then why do I need you on my team? I don't want you on my team because you only know one thing and you're not contributing to this team as a whole. Think about that from a career advancement perspective. Do you want to be the person that they call in when your one area and your one thing is broken? Okay, and bring him in. He's the person that I want to ball. Or do you want to be the person that they say, yeah, I, I know you're the IT person, but boy, you always have some really thought-provoking ideas when you come to these meetings. I want you involved. Who do you think is going to advance their career more? So I tell people all the time that don't, don't think that your job is safe with me because you're the only person who knows how to do this one thing. I can train somebody else to do that one thing. You're here because you're a valued member of the team that contributes in ways that I didn't think of. And the reason you bring this diverse group together is that you want people who, it, this is this current challenge is a marketing challenge, but I want to hear from IT in the warehouse. What do you guys think? Any good ideas? Because they might have some mm -hmm. if they understand what's going on. So mm -hmm. the more generalized that education is, I think is more powerful in the long term for career progression. You know, even thinking back to when I took your class, INFS 3000, it's like, I'm never going to use any of this. And honestly, I did forget most of it. But looking back and realizing how I use data now and really how I protect myself from cybersecurity threats goes back to that class. Mm -hmm. um, so it has been useful. But I think we oftentimes forget that we forget most of it. But it, it does increase quality of life. And like you said, later on in life, when we're looking at a career, having those general educations does help with that progression. Yeah, it's, you know, every high schooler on the planet asks, why do I have to take algebra? I'm never <laughs> going to use this, right? And then later on in life, when they're trying to figure out the angles so they can, you know, fix the handrail on their house, they're using it. You know, education done properly doesn't have to be in your face all the time. It doesn't have to be, let me show you everyday life example of how you're going to use this. It's that that knowledge is in your head and you'll call it forth when you need it. And the unfortunate challenge is, I, I do think there's a, a space and a need for tech school, but technology is advancing and changing career fields so much that having the ability to be flexible so that you can roll with the technology wave as it comes, regardless of your career field, 
is going to serve you better in the long run than getting laser focused on, I'm going to know how to do this one thing. Um, because the reality of the career paths are as well is, you know, you do reach a point where they expect, okay, you're in your mid forties. We expect you to know some stuff about this career field. Well, then starting over in a new career field becomes pretty challenging because their, their biases and assumptions are, well, if you're at this part of your career, you should already know this. Uh, and so you don't want to be, you know, a 35 year old truck driver who's done nothing but drive trucks when self-driving trucks get here because then what are you going to do so bob we're going to transition into our bullet questions so recommend one resource that's helpful for you in everyday life aside from the general internet i'm assuming (laughs) um public libraries and what is one book that you recommend does it have to be topic specific no could be anything anything because i'm a sci-fi nerd and there's a (laughs) there's a whole series right now that i'm really uh, called the baba verse (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> did you um, write the book <laughs> i did not but it's a fantastic series i wish i wish i could remember the the author's name but it is a book about uh it somewhat takes the initial book takes place in uh, our current time a tech executive inventor of something kind of akin to a google sort of thing has his brain downloaded with this new technology uh, that he invent, uh, in, invested in the day before he's walking across the street from a convention and he gets hit and killed. But because he was, his consciousness was downloaded, like 200 years later, he wakes up in a von Neumann probe, which if you're not familiar with the von Neumann probe, von Neumann was a guy that said one day we'll have self-replicating probes that we can send out into the universe to discover life. So the probe can, as it goes out, it'll harvest asteroids and stuff like that and create a second probe. And that probe will go out and harvest stuff and create a third probe. Hmm. So this guy, Bob, um, ends up in a von Neumann probe. And the whole book series is about he replicates in multiple probes and discovers all sorts of things uh, throughout the galaxies in the universe over hundreds of years and that whole experience of expanding out through the galaxy with his own consciousness replicated with other things. It's a it's a really geeky, neat kind of sci-fi. Oh, that sounds so cool. That sounds yeah. super interesting. <laughs> it's a really good I know what I'm buying when I get home. <laughs> awesome. Bob, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Um, share one parting piece of wisdom, the best way to connect with you, and then we'll say goodbye. Um. Best way to connect with me would be, I guess, uh, emailing me here at the university would be the, the best, rcook2 at uccs.edu. Um, you know, I'm not a super wise guy, so I'm not sure parting wisdom. Other than I would say, you know, if I could share, if I had the ability to travel back in time and share with my younger self what I've learned so far in this life, especially when it comes to a career field, it's don't chase the money. It doesn't mean... And I think people think of that in extremes. They think of, we have to make the maximum amount possible because that will pay for the really cool life I want. Or, so I'm supposed to have, you know, 50 grand in student loan debt and eat mac and cheese for 30 years. That's what you say. And then I'll have a happy life. No, there's a, there's a middle ground to be struck there. And I think far too many people aren't honest with themselves of what they really want out of life. They get this vision of what I want is a McLaren sports car and the biggest house on the block and making oodles of money. 
And for some people, maybe that makes them happy. Others, they might say, you know what? I want to be home at a reasonable hour every night and spend time with my significant other or children or pets or my hobby or whatever, because work is supposed to be what we do to pay for our real life. It's not supposed to be the all-encompassing, all-consuming existence. And I think far too often when people are coming out of school, they have an expectation of, I need to make more money because I read this one thing on Google that this other guy across town makes this much money at this career field. And it starts out their their career path with tension that just doesn't need to be there. Well, Bob, thanks again for being on the podcast. This is John Mark. And this is Brent. Signing off. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I really enjoyed this conversation with Bob. It was interesting hearing his perspective on someone that's been in corporate America, has been an executive, has worked jobs that pay really well and what the cost benefit of of those are. So for me, that was super helpful. And like John Mark mentioned, Bob has so much experience at the C-level position throughout his career, uh, both in the military and after his working in the tech sector. So it was really interesting to hear his perspectives on work-life balance and how he managed that because I'm sure for many of our younger listeners, it's kind of our dream to reach that level in a company and make that much money. But to really hear from someone who experienced it firsthand, how he managed that, how it was a stressor on his personal life was really insightful to me. And I think I have to really think back on it and apply those principles to my own life. And honestly, I I just feel like Bob was a a good example of priorities. He valued his family and his marriage over making a lot of money and working in an executive level. So again, for me, that was helpful. And I feel like he's a good example for all of us. And that speaks a lot to just life in general because he seems like a very practical person. So if a practical person is telling you that family and your relationships are more important than money, I think you should listen to him. Be sure to check back every first and third Tuesday of the month for a new episode of Attitude Check. And make sure you follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram to stay up to date with all of our new content. Be sure to tap that subscribe button on your favorite podcast hosting platform because let's face it, you know you want to. And if you like what you've heard so far, feel free to leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us out a lot. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, send it to us at attitudecheckpodcast at gmail.com. And thanks so much to our listeners that share our episodes on social media. It really helps us with finding more listeners just like you. Thanks so much, and we'll catch you next time.